Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? I'm doing good. This is sort of a, an interesting episode we've got planned today. Yeah, and we have a great guest, a friend of mine and, you know, just a really smart guy, Ibrahim Halawi. Welcome to the show. Ibrahim, you teach international relations at Royal Holloway, right? In, in, in London. Yes. Thank you for having me, Nizar. It's great to have you here. Today, we're going to be discussing things that you've been interested in in your own work, uh, sectarianism and counter-revolution. And, you know, the re- rise or revival of sectarianism in Lebanon now that almost everyone is feeling uh, in a real way. Before that, we'll go over the a bit of news. Yeah. Uh, so so this week, we had a mini-sode in the middle of the week. We had a surprise uh, sort of apology episode for missing last week. So we've actually already covered a lot of the stuff that we would have covered normally but I do want to talk very quickly about coronavirus. I know I keep banging on about this, but things are getting bad. Uh, if you want the full update, go back and listen to our Minnesota episode. But suffice it to say, everything just keeps getting worse. Uh, in fact, we're recording this on Sunday afternoon, and about 30 minutes ago or something like that, I think, Gibran Basile's uh, press office announced that he had coronavirus. Uh, so this is starting to affect you know, well-known figures here. And, and and it goes to show just how much the virus uh, has permeated the society. You know, last week, after we dropped that midweek episode, Lebanon set new records on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the most recent day that we have numbers for as of our recording. Saturday saw 1,280 new cases, all but one of those was a local case. And, the, and that means the confirmed active cases are now nearly at 20,000. So 20,000, that's a big number in a small country like Lebanon. It works out, if you do the math, to something like one out of every 200 to 300 people in the country has coronavirus as tested by the authorities. Um, And if you just look at the charts as well, you can see the exponential growth in all the numbers, the active cases, the total cases, daily cases, deaths. And of course, the looming issue here is hospital capacity for us. Abiyad, who is the head of the Rafi Kariri University Hospital, the largest governmental hospital in Lebanon, tweeted this morning, Sunday morning, that hospital occupancy is already around 70%. Uh, so the worry here is that if we get a you know, if we get to that 100% threshold, then we're going to start seeing a major spike in deaths. To me, all of these numbers and this exponential growth and everything, it just means that the authorities need to do two things. They need to do the lockdown, just like the scientific committee at the public health ministry recommended, and also, you know, come up with a real plan to support those who can't afford to stay home right now. Um, And anything less than doing those two things really, to me, seems like gross negligence uh, on the part of the authorities, even if it is a caretaker government. Yeah, so uh, we're still failing on the on the coronavirus um, level. Clearly, we also had another quite expected failure on the government formation level. So the last episode, the minisode, we talked about the cabinet formation, the political bickering, and uh, the political tensions that exist around the cabinet formation thing. And today we um, we're recording after Adib Mustafa Adib, the prime minister resi- designate has announced his resignation or his basically his um, rejection of the mission to form a new government. So now they will have to designate a new prime minister to form this government. So it's been how long, Ben, since we don't have a government? As of Monday, 49 days and counting. 49 days. 
this is going to last a while longer, it seems. Um, Adib resigned Saturday. He said that uh, when he took on the position, when he accepted the, 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 the mission of forming a new government, he thought that all political parties were on the same page in terms of forming an a technocratic government, one that, you know, not political parties name their partisans into it, but rather, you know, um, uh, the prime minister and the president would uh, form a good team of technocrats who can be supported or endorsed by the political parties, but uh, rather independent in the decision making and committed, most importantly, to the reform agenda that was put forward by uh, the, the the French initiative uh, during Macron's visit on the 1st of September. And then he said that after things got to a more serious um, point in the in this journey, he found out that the agreement, this agreement had kind of collapsed and that there wasn't a commitment uh, as he thought. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talked a lot about it in the previous episode. The main obstacle that uh, everyone is aware of, I think, is that uh, Hezbollah and Amal, uh, the two major Shiite political forces, have been insisting on naming all Shiite ministers in the government and most importantly on holding the finance ministry. Uh, this was the major obstacle and um, what we saw the latest major development before Adib's resignation was that Hariri, Saad Hariri, who uh, was supportive of Adib and this process of government formation and was one of the people who nominated Adib, uh, made this initiative where he said he would accept that the finance ministry goes to someone from the Shiite sect. However, uh, it should be someone who is independent and chosen by Adib. He made things more complicated. He threw the ball into the courts of uh, of the Shiite duo, as they're called, or Amal and Hezbollah. Uh, and after that, things kind of collapsed. Most of it behind the scenes, we didn't see how it was collapsing very clearly on the political surface. Uh, but then Adib announced that, you know, he's not forming the cabinet anymore and said and insisted that, you know, if there is a chance, we should commit to the French initiative and try to revive it and kind of save it uh, as fast as possible. Yeah, and, and I think we have to speak quite tentatively when talking about the future here, uh, just for the simple fact that we're, we're recording this, like I said, on Sunday afternoon. Macron is scheduled to give a press conference, I believe it's 7 p.m. Beirut time today. So uh, we're, we're waiting for that to see what happens next. Yeah, Ibrahim uh, was telling me before the show that, you know, Mike Macron might, you know, uh, renew the pledge and say there's another opportunity to do this. It's not the end of it. While we're getting now some breaking news items about, you know, sources close to Macron saying that he will have a much fiercer tone. So it, it can go either way, right? There is no one way in which this could go. So sit back and wait and see. Yeah, for us. Exactly. Yeah, but but it's been interesting, I think, as we've gone through this government formation process, just the number of voices that have spoken up, uh, you know, especially from the religious community, the heads of the religions like the Patriarch of the Maronite Church, Bashar al-Rai, the, the Sunni Mufti, um, and, as well as uh, the Shiite religious leader. Yeah, definitely. They've been they've been really involved in this whole cabinet formation bickering thing, and they've been making statements about things as specific as you know, who the finance ministry uh, goes to and the fact that, you know, Amal and Hezbollah are insisting on it being uh, for the Shiite sect. So we have people from all kind of major religions, as you were saying. We had Rai saying that, uh, Shara Rai, the Maronite patri patriarch, saying that there's no no justification for one sect taking over the a specific ministry and the cabinet. And he also said that, uh, you know, all talks about changing the confessional system in Lebanon today 
is nonsense as long as we have an illegitimate militia or militias. He talked in the plural sense. He wasn't. He was trying to talk about Hezbollah without naming it. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, we had Qabalan, Ahmad Qabalan, from the official kind of Shiite representative institution, talking about the need for a civil state, which is something that we hear a lot about in Lebanon, and we can talk about in this episode more thoroughly, a kind of non-confessional state, but saying that while we need a non-confessional state because confessionalism has brought corruption and decay, etc., uh, as long as some people don't accept it and we haven't done that yet, we need to insist on the rights of every sect and we need to protect ourselves as Shiites and take the ministry and take as many ministers as we can, etc. So kind of some escalatory tone. We had also a statement from the higher uh, Islamic Shiite Council um, or the Supreme Islamic Shiite, Islamic Shiite Council kind of condemning one statement from Ra'i saying, you know, you are attacking the Shiites uh, while the West is attacking us as well and all of that. So we've had some escalate, escalatory tone from religious institutions and it's interesting that they're playing this role today, which brings us to the main one of the main questions of this episode. And here we want your, your thoughts, Brahim. Why are we seeing a rise of sectarianism in Lebanon today? What? How can we explain that? That was one hell of a summary, guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, um, that's a that's a really interesting phase we're in because um, just a few days, weeks, months ago, we were thinking that this is the end of of whatever we think is sectarianism. But now, as you said, even at an institution level, these guys are very proactive. So maybe just maybe it's desperation. I, I mean, I would like to start by saying it is possible that they're not thinking about this the same way. We always tend to analyze sectarian leaders, institutions, and elite as if they all have kind of the same perspective on things. It is possible that they are seeing this differently. Some of them actually acknowledge how existential this is. I mean, as a political order being collapsing in front of their eyes. Others might just think this is a storm like the other storms and we can, we can survive and wave it away. So yeah, regardless of how their, their perception on the situation is, apparently all of them are enjoying returning to what is basically their comfort zone. And the idea that politics can only work within this sort of confessional system by everyone making sure that the other is not disenfranchised, because otherwise you won't have any sort of governing body. Um, so it might be then desperation, trying to keep the system afloat, while at the same time, knowing, at least some of them, that the opportunity structure that accompanies sectarianism is shrinking, obviously, because the economy has collapsed. So they might be too desperate to keep it afloat as, as a hegemony, as this idea that this is the way things are, while societies themselves, even those who are very much involved in confessional ordering, are gradually seeing that the privileges that they had because of their loyalty to this sort of system is dwindling. So basically, in short, they are actually living through a transition, even if they don't know it. Uh, and their role will eminently become useless. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point, uh, especially when we look at the religious institutions. And because the religious institutions, it's, it's, uh, it's clear that, you know, they live off the, the, of, of the sectarian system. And without this sectarian system being so entrenched in different parts of society and of the state, especially, their role would diminish and eventually they wouldn't be major political players or perhaps even economic players, etc. But what you said about, you know, desperation also maybe applies to the political class as a whole, right? Because what is what the political class is surviving after, especially after the uprising of October 2019, and this kind of popular 
sentiment that says the sectarian system has failed us. We have they have been dividing us along these sectarian lines against our own interests, and now we are uniting against them as a political class or a political establishment. And this sentiment itself is the one of the factors that are, that make the uprising revolutionary. So is this part of the counter-revolution? You've been doing some work on counter-revolution. I know you have you're planning to publish something soon about it. Do you understand this rise of sectarianism as part of a counter-revolution after what we saw last year? Yeah, absolutely, Nizar. I think it, it, an even better term to describe what we have in Lebanon is sectarianization, because it is actually something that is intentionally and systematically utilized by a group of sectarian warlords turned politicians in order to reproduce some sort of legitimacy. This is post-war Lebanon. So it's fair to say that it's not something that has just been spontaneously being reproduced in society. There's really strong machines, be it economic machines, social machines, political machines, that sort of find a way to revive uh, the system. So in the context of what you've, ju- you've just mentioned of the October uprising, it's very hard not to see the the role of sectarianization as a, a core component of counter-revolution. So before I, I give a brief description of why I'm saying this, let me just define quickly counter-revolution. Counter-revolution is not an event, right? So it's not just this moment in which, let's say, the police crack down on protests. It's preemptive. It's proactive. So sometimes certain groups or forces or elites, they proactively try to preempt the emergence of a revolutionary challenger. So it's a process of securing and maintaining exclusive privileges. And now with the collapse of the economy, I think society at large have realized that there's a very small minority, which happened to be from different sects. They all wear the same clothes, shop from the same places, eat in the same restaurants, travel together. But at the same time, they are the ones that are selling society the idea of inherent othering, right? that we are very different. So the class realities are starting to emerge, which is obviously a revolutionary phenomenon. But then at the same time, and this is where I'm describing why sectarianization is actually part of counter-revolution, what sectarianization does is it it allows or it it gives a very strong impression for society to reimagine their sources of deprivation away from class realities. So in other words, now, for example, the government that was meant to happen with the deep, this whole mass propaganda by pro-Hezbollah and pro-Amal um, outlets and journalists and elites and analysts. They have their own, as I said, social machines. This whole propaganda that if we actually lose the financial ministry seat, we are being deprived of something. So this is sort of imagining a, a deprivation that is not actually the reality of even their own constituencies, who will actually have to struggle with and endure extremely harsh economic circumstances, regardless of what the sectarian identity of this upcoming, no longer upcoming finance, um, finance minister. So that is why sectarianization is such a powerful component of counter-revolution. It really overshadows the class and material realities of society and gives them the impression that their deprivation is actually coming from this sort of mythical other, which happens to be the other sect. Yeah, we were uh, we were just talking before the show, me and Nizar, and, and uh, we mentioned how nobody's talking about the banks anymore. They're just getting a free pass right now in 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 the press. Exactly, like all the yeah. focus is on uh, who's winning and who's losing from the sects. That you know the real winners and losers of society are outside of the equation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. I mean, how suddenly uh, the banking sector, all these hun- over hundred billion dollars are gone, and now suddenly the rage is being channeled elsewhere in a very textbook manner. These guys are veterans and really channeling public anger, which happens always to be obviously about material reality, 
into this imagination of communal deprivation. It's incredible. So I'm curious, though, to what degree do you think that these religious institutions actually are representing, you know, the will of their constituents, I guess, for lack of a better term, or to which degree are they just channeling the politics of the day? Uh, we know all all the time that there's a lot of questions about political capture of these religious institutions and the horse trading that goes on there. So who who do these rep, uh, these institutions represent fundamentally? Mm. So to be fair, even to these institutions, largely when any society, not just Lebanon, whenever society is reminded of the absence of the state, it resorts back to some sort of tribal or communal identities. So Lebanese, especially with the, with the recent massacre in the port and it, a bit earlier with with the collapse of the economy they are really this is the manifestation of the absence of the state so people regardless of the role of the institutions they naturally go back to their communal identities this is how they try to protect themselves so institutions try to capitalize on that so they exaggerate it but they capitalize on on it and and they make a bigger case for it well when we think about the link between religious institutions and sectarian leaders it's very straightforward there's a direct not just political, but also material interest, because of this political, which, which Nizar just mentioned, those religious institutions are also cash machines. The whole system of in which people have to resort to these bureaucracies requires fees, uh, and, and people pay a lot of money to be able to uh, make use of the religious bureaucracies, which in turn feeds into the sectarian system, not just um, at a social level, but materially. So there's a direct link. And We've seen some instances, and you guys have covered some instances before, when those sectarian leaders either blackmail or impose certain things on religious institutions and vice versa. So when Hariri's uh, government resigned, we saw the role of the Sunni religious institution and basically dictating the alternative to Hariri. So yeah, it's fair to say that they belong to this same social political order, which also feeds on the fears, the real fears. So I'm trying here to say that I have to acknowledge the real fears that people in Lebanon feel when they now draw back into their sectarian cocoons. Yeah, I, I just want to reflect for a second about what you, when you were saying um, it's, a, it's a matter of changing what deprivation means. And I think this is a great way of looking at it because when I talk to my friends from communities that are supportive of Hezbollah today, they, the main thing they feel is that there is an international blockade against them. There is an international campaign against them led by the U.S. and the Gulf. And this campaign includes full normalization with Israel, so treason to, you know, or you know, betrayal of the, of the main cause for the Arabs, uh, which is the Palestinian cause. Also, it means, you know, uh, block, blocking funds for Hezbollah with all the sanctions and Hezbollah's political allies. Uh, it means all the campaigning and discourse against Hezbollah by everyone, the Saudi king, uh, the, 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 you know, every major player who is against Iran uh, in the world is trying to kind of use Hezbollah maybe as a uh, as a pressure point. And th they feel that as a sect, they're being targeted. And when we see how the, this manifested, the cabinet formation collapse, we see that there was confidence in these religious institutions and the political figures uh, in the in the Shiite sphere, there was this confidence in like making these victimization statements, right, and and reinforcing them because they know that on the on the at the base on the popular level there is a lot of acceptance to them because 
they reflect something that is definitely happening. Uh, it's being framed as a certain way, but what's definitely happening is a certain crackdown on Hezbollah. Um, how it's being translated is that uh, the Shiites in Lebanon can't get power because when they do, they will be shut down by an international conspiracy. <laughs> and it's manifested in the government formation. It will manifest in other ways. And this is providing grounds, fertile grounds for uh, sectarian strife, in my opinion, because uh, sectarianism is not always about hatred or anger towards another specific sect. For example, in the in Shiite politics, in my opinion, over the last 10 years, even at the moment when we were talking about, uh, you know, the May 7 events and the mini civil war that happened, etc., even at that point, uh, the discourse in Shiite politics was not, you know, against a certain other sect. It was that us as a sect need to protect ourselves and our interests and our resistance. This has been the discourse quite consistently. And this is enough to uh, put you in one on one end of the spectrum, especially that on the other end of the spectrum, we have people like the Lebanese forces, a lot of people from the, uh, the anti-establishment movement who are saying the main obstacle facing change in Lebanon is Hezbollah's weapons arsenal and the military presence it has, and that there will be no solution for Lebanon if the Hezbollah issue is not resolved. So with these two ends of the spectrums that exist and this polarization attracting more and more people who used to be taking this anti-establishment uh, position, they're getting us probably closer to, you know, scenarios like another civil war, which a lot of people are talking about. And we will reflect on it in a bit. Uh, but it's, I'm just trying to kind of elaborate on what you said in terms of the, mm -hmm. how deprivation can turn really political and mobilize people on completely mm -hmm. new grounds. Yeah, especially in these times, yeah, when there's no other way to to protect yourself, you resort back to that. Yeah, absolutely. We've we've seen a lot of talk uh, recently as well about a civil state, deconfessionalization, all of these things, and it's it's this renewed push, right? And I I think it's interesting though because we there's a history here, right, of certain times certain religious leaders or political leaders calling for some form of, okay, let's move away from our sectarian system, but they usually do it in a very sectarian way, it seems, in the way in what they want to reform or the reforms they want to start with uh, seem to be the ones that don't really affect their sect. I, I'm, I'm curious, Ibrahim, you've been watching all of the statements come out over the past uh, you know, couple of weeks do these statements fit into the normal historical pattern or are they something new? <laughs> yeah, no, they, I think it does. This is a very good way of looking at it, looking at it historically. Um, even when we had our civil, uh, civil war, sorry, um, in 1975, they still had the, the same sectarian parties that mobilized people uh, along sectarian lines. They still managed to co-opt non-sectarian um, causes. So it's not something new to the way in which they reproduce the legitimacy. Now, again, just like I mentioned how they might not be thinking about this the same way, this can be exactly the same thing. So even if they're all starting to kind of play the civil state card, some of them, but not all of them, they're saying they want it. Each one of them, depending on their position within this sort of consociational power balance, might be thinking about the civil state differently. And this is where it becomes interesting, because then some of them are thinking of this transi transition to a civil state, if at all it will happen, as, a, as an opportunity for them to expand their grip from a sectarian perspective on politics of the country based on the changes of demography. 
So in, broadly speaking, it has never happened before that the same people who are so invested, existentially invested, in a consociational power sharing are the ones that actually implement or take us into a civil state. This has never happened before. So whatever they say is really just um, a political uh, maneuver to um, advance their position within the system. And they're not hiding it, by the way. When they are asked about this whole civil state that contradicts their insistence on distribution of positions based on confessional um, agreements, they actually say that. Um, we will continue to play by the rules of the sectarian game until um, we have a civil state. But that is obviously an insult to our intelligence. <laughs> you, you haven't seen historically Republicans who played by the rules of the monarchy until a republic has established. If you are a Republican, you work on the establishment of a republic. So that, in that sense, it's very manipulative and it's dangerous. And they have the resources to co-opt the narrative and really uh, suck the meaning out of it and turn it into this sort of tool to advance their position in a continuously consociational order. So you don't believe that there is any room for an incrementalist approach here? Um, no, I do believe that the only way is incremental. Okay. And this is, this is because, for instance, I'm against the skillon, yani skillon. Simply Not because it's not useful at the time, but now we've moved into a phase where we really need to understand how far these opportunity structures go deep into our society. So how do we deal if we say, like, we want this whole sectarian system to collapse tomorrow? How do we deal with the fact that most of society, if not all of society, somehow or another, benefits from the very inefficient and mass employment that took place in the public sector? So people still live off this sort of clientelist network. So how do you deal with the fact that this opportunity structure goes actually deeply down into society? Where does the killon, yani killon, all means all line stops? Where do we stop? Do we start at the judges? Do we go deep into the public uh, servants? So the society itself is really a victim, but it's also hooked into this system of resource extraction within the state. And that's why it cannot happen overnight. Otherwise, we would have social collapse. So that's why it has to be incremental. But my point is then, these are not the people that can even implement an incremental process of building a civil state. Even incrementally, they have no, no, not, no nor the will, nor the ability to implement this uh, form. That's why they have to give up um, this role to someone else. And this is where we are stuck at the moment in Lebanon. I think what you were saying about uh, the different priorities or different purposes for each political actor in talking about transformation to a civil state, or I don't know. I mean, when are we going to stop using the term civil state? It means absolutely nothing. It's absolutely ridiculous as a term, to be honest. Why don't we just say secular state? What's your point? What's your position on this debate, by the way, Brian? Because the, among activists, organizers, etc., in Lebanon, there's always this debate. Do we say secular or is secular too scary? Let's stick with a dawla madaniya or civil state. And I understand the 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 you know the triggers that a lot of people are trying to pre- avoid or prevent by not saying secular because of all the misconception about secularism and because of the fears of se- from secularism. Um, but does civil state mean anything really? Because if Awan is saying, for example, if the president is saying, uh, let's announce, let's declare Lebanon to be a civil state now, let's start you know, abolishing uh, some sectarian quotas from small places and move slowly mm. to... Uh, I think Aoun is just not bluffing. Aoun is saying something that he knows will not happen so that he's on the right side of history because he knows that mm. the sectarian system is 
has failed completely and that we are right. People who have been saying that we need a new system are right and have been right for a while. And now after this crisis, uh, it's either that or a complete collapse of everything. So probably Aoun is just taking like a historical stance and um, for the sake of it at the end of his his term. And at the same time, um, there might be, you know, this might be a path that uh, some people in the political class have to take, right? So maybe we we don't want to dwell on that so much because it's part of, you know, propaganda and polarization. But the 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 idea that uh, Shiite forces like uh, Amal, for example, or Hezbollah have interest not in sectarianization, in secularization, sorry, have interest in advancing their share, bigger share, of getting a bigger share in the partition that exists, the sectarian power sharing. For example, having a third of MPs instead of half of the Muslim MPs, or uh, you know, other forms of making the the sectarianism, sectarianism in Lebanon or for confessionalism more specific uh, to mm. the specific sect is now, t- it seems to me like from a realistic point of view just looking at what they're saying it seems to me that this is where they're taking it um, mm. so uh, the system now, is everyone's talking about the system now collapsing how do you see uh, this system transforming, like what be- can be coming next after the system? You know, Macron talked about the new social contract and everyone was so excited about it as if no one had said it before. Uh, we've been talking about this for ages, but realistically speaking, from a point of political analysis, not political aspiration, where is the system going? Right, so there are a few scenarios, but before I go into that, I really like the idea that we should mention that this sort of secular, civil, what are we... I think both terms are abstract, right? I don't know why people think secular is clearer than civil. Like also the manifestations of a secular state are very peculiar to certain societies. Now, my goal for civil state, I prefer it, um, well, because I also happen to be part of a party that believes in a civil state, but also because, not because we're scared, by the way, it's not, the use of a civil state is not so that we don't scare the sectarian people, no. It's simply because we actually believe that there is a difference in the way we define it. And this difference in, ensures a much more organic and gradual transition from sectarianism to secularism. Because the civil state is simply about removing this middleman. Now we've been talking today about the role of religious institutions. So civil civil state simply says you can stay sectarian. In fact, you can still do politics in a sectarian way, but your relationship with the state and your state's relationship with you is direct. There's no middleman, which is now happens to be the same institutions. That and the sectarian leaders, there's no middleman that you should continuously show loyalty to as a condition for you to access services and rights within the state. So that is specifically what the civil state is about, which is not as existentially difficult to deal with when it comes to sectarian society, because you're not saying that you are simply wiping them out of the political sphere. And eventually, obviously, the hope is by creating this completely new relationship between those citizens who happen also to be sectarian and the state, they will become less incentivized to reproduce the loyalty of sectarian groups because they're no longer exploited um, or blackmailed for them to have access to very basic services like healthcare and education and so on and so forth. So this is specifically why I believe civil state is not really that abstract and it's not a defensive definition and it's not just to avoid scaring them away. It's actually a very pragmatic, but also more realistic way of transitioning towards a secular society. Right. So getting that out of the way, scenarios. Um, That's interesting because if we don't have a civil state, the only thing I can think of is civil strife. And 
you guys have done an incredible job showing how these political parties are really very comfortable taking us back into this sort of securitized situation, right? We go back to our cantons, people queue in lines at the offices of sectarian parties in order to get bread, uh, fuel, and different um, key necessities to sustain themselves at the time of the, fu- the impeding economic disaster. So this is, I think, the most likely scenario because the state is no longer there unless these guys agree on uh, giving more powers to the military, which plays the role of maintaining some sort of order in society while they continue bickering, because this is what they do, betting on changes in the region internationally that would allow them to to find a new arrangement uh, between one another. But otherwise, and the likely scenario, as I said, is people drawing back into their regions, i.e. into their communities, and sectarian parties basically taking responsibility of those regions as they did during the war. Now, I don't see a civil war in the form of open, large-scale uh, war the way, the way we saw in, in the 1970s, 1980s, but I do think that we will see recurring and significant security accidents and incidents within communities and between communities. And and here might be a good place just to note that, yeah, what you mentioned about the sort of regional chessboard, uh, the, these international actors, they also play into this, right? Because they certainly, they may not be actively stoking sectarianism themselves, but through their political alliances and their you know local affiliates here, it, it means that if they play hardball, that means that sectarianism is naturally going to have uh, more room to breathe inside Lebanon. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the unfortunate reality of Lebanon as well. And that's why we think, again, with what Nizar was saying, these people are unable and unwilling to change and to head to form an actual civil state simply because of the roles they play. They are actually locked into their roles, even as elite, and therefore society at large is also hooked into the system. Mm. So I'm hearing from many people this this perspective on what kind of war might happen, that everyone is saying almost the same thing, which is um, that we won't have a full-fledged war in terms of, you know, tanks going from the east into the western side and you know, occupying whole new neighborhoods and and ruling them, even if uh, they're not from the same sectarian affiliation or whatever. So more like, you know, closing down certain areas, uh, ensuring each party's dominance or each militia's dominance over a certain area, uh, rather than try to take the central state and to win the whole war, because... Mm. Um, it looks like uh, it looks like everyone has learned the lesson that no one can really eliminate everyone else in Lebanon. Um, mm. But I mean, uh, this times this sounds like it's uh, it's realistic to me. However, I just like to focus to zoom in on the Christian communities for a second and mm. raise this question: Is it really? I mean, in the LF base, in the Lebanese forces base, there seems to be quite a readiness to confront Hezbollah once and for all. After years and years of of clear, you know, rhetoric that blames Hezbollah for almost everything that's happening in Lebanon and Hezbollah's allies, if something like that would happen, then we would have to see a manifestation in it in the tensions that already exist and are very escalated between the LF and the FPM. Mm-hmm. And one interesting thing that I think exists in Lebanon in in in, in the Christian community is that communities is that there's a there's a division lf fpm division within even the same houses and the same families so mm. 
um, these contingent, the, these factors that we don't often take into consideration when we're talking about how things might manifest, might actually be, you know, if nothing major changes in terms of like the FPM breaking away from Hezbollah and aligning with the West or something of that magnitude, might make things more complicated to uh, to manifest on the military level or on the security level, and also the 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 clear unwillingness of people like Jumblat or Frangi or other people to be entering any kind of uh, civil strife uh, and the, the lack of, of readiness uh, on the level of, you know, uh, the people who uh, are supposed to be fighting if this happens. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me like, you know, um, I'm not saying that, uh, that, you know, these arguments makes it less likely that we go towards civil strife. I'm just saying that, you know, it seems that uh, it's complicated enough for the people in power to reconsider this uh, to mm. an extent. And uh, this might be one of the reasons why perhaps the people like the LF and the anti-Hezbollah front wouldn't be so excited about going in this direction. Because if it comes to full-fledged like military power, we know who's going to win. It's Hezbollah, obviously. If it comes to taking over the central government, we also know who can do that in, the, in terms of military capacity. Uh, but... Uh, uh, when it comes to actually controlling areas, controlling ports, as what happened in the in the civil war, controlling like main facilities and economies, it doesn't seem so easy or so straightforward. Oh, absolutely, you're right, and that's why the next few days are really interesting, because now we will be able to see because this whole government formation uh, attempt collapsed, and very likely we're not going to have another attempt. We're just going to live with the app for the. For the for, for the foreseeable future, we will see how these rivalries will play out outside the, the facade of the state. So, how is it going to manifest on the ground? You're right. But now that you've mentioned this desire, I remembered. I'm not sure if it was last week or the week before. This huge extravaganza, the, the Lebanese forces um, event for the scouts that they did, which was a show of power. But not only that, for those who've read the the early days of about the early days of our civil war, the previous one, the the scouting mobilization has a huge symbolic value because all forms of militias that emerged during the war started from the mobilization of scouts and training them in a military way. So I think there are messages being sent across the board um, of some sense of readiness to defend um, their communities. But yeah, I can totally see how the tension between specifically uh, Aoun and, and Jaja can, can, can go wrong. And therefore, I agree they are very much aware of this. But the, this is the thin line they play, you know. They they sometimes need it, so they they need some sort of security incident. But at the same time, they try to keep it under control because the security incidents reproduces some sort of asabiya, this tension that that makes people return back to the loyalties of of these tribes. Yeah, but one of the things also that I think about um, when it comes to the collapse of the state or the collapses of this system is that. Sometimes it's us people on the you know the progressive side who are talking about about the system collapsing and the state collapsing, and we're talking about it from the standpoint of historical change, right? Like the state is is, is this system is done, the state is collapsing, which means that we have to move to something better. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, uh, the same discourse uh, can be and is being used. Uh, to say something else, which is what you were saying earlier, the state is collapsing, so we have no one but ourselves to protect mm. each other. 
Um, so it's it's uh, also it's in my opinion interesting to see how different factions of, for example, the anti-establishment movement will deal with this issue of you know the state corruption, uh, the state collapse, because uh, you know people like, for example, the party you're part of, Citizens in a State, uh, led by Sharwal Nahas. For those who don't know it, it's um, it's always talking about the need to rebuild the state because the state is in this disintegrated position where it's bankrupt, it's disintegrated, it's corrupt to the uh, all on all levels of the administration, etc. And you know how how you move from that discourse to saying, but if we take and if good people with good intentions and a serious political vision take over the state today, they can actually rebuild it and transform it despite the existential questions that are at hand, mm. like Hezbollah's weapons or like, you know, uh, international pressure against, uh, like the international conflict that is being manifested in Lebanon, etc. So walking this will also, this is also going to be a thin line for us to be walking, right? People mm. are against the establishment, not only for the political forces in power. Yeah, absolutely, Nizar. And uh, maybe we can move now on something a bit more uh, suggestive rather than critique. I do think that, I mean, society, our society at large, will not have the privilege of political mobilization in the near future, right? Most of our society will be just trying to find ways to make ends meet. The size of, and, and this is my favorite fact, I mean, and I mean, it's a prediction, not a fact, but I mean, stat that matter to me is that the size of our economy in 2018 that GDP, we will never get back to that GDP before 2042. So we're really oh. talking about, yeah, I mean, this, every time someone asks me, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, this is the only number that matters to me. This economy, which was already anyway ridiculous in 2018, we will not have this size of the economy until 2042. What does that mean? Well, the world will be by then. So this is really a society completely transforming. This is not really about reforms anymore. There's nothing to reform because the economy is no longer there. So this is huge. Yeah. So we, we I totally agree with what Nizar is saying. There's no way to for them to turn it around. Some of them are still in denial. Others understand how existential this is. I'm talking about sectarian leaders. But there's no way they can turn this around unless something huge happens in the region. So now this goes back to what I want to say about suggesting the alternative. I do believe, and this is just being realistic, that there's still this very thin class within the middle class in Lebanon that has the privilege of political mobilization. And this is also historical. There's always this minority within the middle class that when it comes to such social and economic collapses in their societies, they take the initiative to turn things around. They have the resources and the autonomy economically as well, because they're not reliant on the clientelist network. And they have the political means and awareness to play that role in society. And I'm not being very romantic about it anymore. There's a specific, a very small minority in society that has to rise up to the occasion. Otherwise, yeah, all the criticism that we're talking about, all the bleak future that we're seeing, there's no way to turn it around because these people can't co up the discourse of an alternative. And us as anti-establishment parties, we will not be able to have the resources or the social power, social capital to, to face off. Simple as that. Society is somewhere else. They're not... They don't have that sort of incentive or even the time to challenge those mafias. That, that's interesting that you single out this uh, slice of the middle class, which, I mean, anecdotal evidence seems to me like they're leaving Lebanon every day right now, uh, exactly. first off, which isn't, which isn't a great thing uh, if, if we go along with your line of thought. Uh, but I'm, I'm kind of curious, though, because uh, at the very beginning of the October uprising, 
it probably wasn't the middle class though that sparked that it was actually the people who put the fear of god in the political class mm. were the people who were going down you know going to downtown and ransacking it and to me that seems as though there, there's just so much more power in that rather than relying on this small you know cadre of probably peaceful protesters from the middle class trying to enact change poor people can and will challenge the system they will make it's very hard for these sectarian leaders to live happily ever after. But the idea of forming a state is a completely different ballgame. There has to be um, a group that has the ability day and night to work and strategize for the emergence of a political challenger. That sounds elitist, but history is elitist. It is the elite that form states. Yeah. Mm. I just want to propose a counterfact to... To, I mean, I agree with what you're saying uh, in terms of like dissecting the population class-wise and trying to see the poli- the material dependence or independence from the sectarian clientelist system and how that makes one group more ready than the other, etc. Um, however, I want to propose um, another perspective, which is that the poor people are the ones and, and the lower middle class in Lebanon is the biggest right coalition, the working class in general, be it formal or informal, the low wage earning working class in Lebanon is the biggest uh, class by far. And especially after this crisis, it's increasing every day. So we're talking about probably like 80% of the population or 75% of the population who are maybe beyond the below the poverty level or just above it in the lower middle class. And these people are the people who vote. Um, and when you look at you know the results of the 2018 parliamentary elections, although I already said they were garbage now because they don't represent the current reality, but just looking at them in terms of uh, demographics and class, etc., you see that you know um, it's not true what a lot of people say, which is that people didn't vote. People voted in big numbers actually compared mm-hmm. to the situation that we're in, and uh, they were uh, you know encouraged by through different means by the ruling political parties to um, to vote and they did it's just that the numbers don't reflect the reality because there's so much because there are so many problems with which names are included on the list which names are not for example uh, out of you know 100 names you might have 10 or 15 of people who are dead or in the armed forces and can't actually vote you have many issues that where you when you're calculation calculating um voting turnout voter turnout you can't take into account clearly because you don't know how uh, what's the level of that um, uh, misfunction anyway what i'm trying to say is that right now you were trying you were saying before that uh, it's a matter of material the material reality imposing itself on everyone and becoming a priori- priority and i think this is the moment where sectarian clientel system will try to revive itself to uh, to uh, you know the political parties and religious institutions are trying to rebuild all of these clientelist bonds with people and they have the resources to do that and in many cases the foreign funding which is much more valuable today because of the lira mm-hmm. exchange rate depreciation so if we don't challenge at that end at the end of material dependence versus independence from political par- from political system and uh, religious institutions etc Whatever we do as a a woke, um, active middle class who has time to do things, whatever we do, if we don't mobilize a large section of the population in that direction, uh, it's not going to be possible to win. And this is one of my concerns. Uh, uh, Adopting this kind of political strategy 
works like i for example one of my perspectives on uh, uh, on uh, is that it's very successful in mobilizing a specific po- part of the population which is mostly either diaspora or people who are living here middle class highly educated know about policy to a certain extent and know the difference between this the state that we have the state that other countries have or the state that we can have etc and uh, are quite you know well informed on these issues of politics and and stuff like that so it's a specific section of the population that's being involved uh, but when it comes to popular power we're talking about as you said it's a different game uh, mm. in 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 change and in politics it's also a different kind of set of tools and things that you need to do if you're trying to break the pillar of the sectarian clientelist system and detach people from this clientelist system versus creating a vision, a platform, a, 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 you know, a, a sense of readiness for taking over. You see mm-hmm. what I mean? So uh, in terms of just democratic change, I see that this is one of the biggest like uh, uh, problems or gaps that we will be facing in the, in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, I totally agree. So, <laughs> um, just to, to be to be clear now that I, we raised the issue of uh, of the poor and their material reality, it's not like we're saying they lack intelligence. Obviously, this is just a disclaimer. They don't lack intelligence. The poor does not lack that intelligence. They don't lack the the power if they organize. It's just that, as you mentioned, it's the it's the material reality. So, based on what you said, what we're trying to say here is, how do you actually provide these people with an alternative? source of subsistence so yours it's exactly that point so the money will come in and much less they don't these clientelist networks will not need as much dollars as they needed to especially at times of economic crisis to really make people at least stand in the queue so that's what exactly we're saying for us to be able to compete with the huge resources that these sectarian parties have because they also encroach on the state we have to be able to be in the state the only way we can have that access to resources. We're no longer in the Cold War. We don't have that sort of regional, international power that can provide us with the alternative means to, 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 to create an opportunity structure for the poor that is alternative to the existing system. And lastly on this, and this is worth kind of giving it a global perspective, have we had any case in history in which the rule of mafias was overturned by anything other than the state? Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think this is um, actually thinking about, you know, building alternative solidarity economies versus clientelism and how the political manifestations of that is a really fascinating topic that we will be talking about in in future episodes for sure. Uh, Unfortunately, that's the end of our uh, time for this episode. I really enjoyed this episode, right? I, really I, cool. I could go on for another hour or so, but I think Susan might kill us. Yeah, she's already <laughs> killing us in the <laughs> chat. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Brahim. I really love the, the eloquence and the, the, the structure of, uh, of what you were saying. It makes sense to me. I hope it made sense to our listeners as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. That was inspiring for me as well. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, we will be back next week with another episode of the podcast. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And I'm Brahim Halawi. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast.
Politics podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.